Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week on Truth and Movies, a small town in rural Brazil is erased from existence in Juliano Donnell's and Kleber Mendoza Filho's Baccarat. This world is upside down. Then, Georgian traditional dance gets its own gay love story in Levin Atkins, and then we danced. And in Film Club this week, we revisit David Lynch's Victorian horror weepy from 1980, The Elephant Man. Oh, Mr. You're not an elephant man at all. All here on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. I'm going to say hello, movie truthers, in recognition of our uh, regular host, Michael Leader, who uh, couldn't make it this week uh, to, to the host chair. So you have uh, me, David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies, and also Hannah Woodhead. Hi who is uh, taking the lead on critical movie detail. The uh, first order of business, I guess, is that we have a new issue of Little White Lies on the shelves, and uh, it would be nice to be able to talk about that before we talk about the movies that are in the cinemas this week. Hannah, would you care to introduce our, our new issue and maybe say a bit about the cover film? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. I don't know if I've mentioned the cover film yet on this podcast, so the cover film of Little White Lies 84 is Promising Young Woman, Emerald Fennel's debut feature starring Kerry Mulligan. When did we first see this? You saw it in uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, yeah. you, 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 you winged halfway across the globe to be able to uh, get, get <laughs> early peepers on this one. Yeah, it oh, that feels like such a long time ago. It was only two months ago. I feel like a lot's happened since Sundance. We've had a global pandemic. We're in it. Well, We're in it. It's so, happening so, right yeah. now. We're in the midst, <laughs> baby. Um, but uh, so this film is a black comedy about a young woman who has an interesting coping mechanism, shall we say, for um, something that happened to her during college and kind of a series of events cause her to take revenge upon some people who have wronged her. That sounds very vague and could be any number of films, but I don't really want to spoil it. I think it is one of those ones where the less you know, 
going in the better having said that please buy and read our magazine mm. but i think the the great thing about this magazine this issue in particular is that the features around the film we have the two lead interviews with emerald and carrie but the features around it kind of stand alone and you can definitely dig into those before the film comes out in april they're all by female writers and cover such a wide range of topics this issue from harvey weinstein to the dangers of fluffy pens um which i think is you know a testament to the uh, i mean i think on the the fluffy pen feature alone is probably worth the cover price oh, yeah. because i mean you know people need to know they do the, the dangers are real and this is, this, is, this is high academia this is like you know there'll be professorships attached to this uh, this subject soon so you know getting on the bottom floor yeah. with the with the fluffy pen we, we, uh, we must shout out abby bender because i mean before i read that piece i i was naive to the dangers it really is like i took fluffy pens for granted <laughs> the, the visual representation that of thereof so you know i always enjoy a my mind's pen, been changed but now now i understand the gravitas that comes with them but yeah, um, I, I mean, I could talk all day about the fluffy pen, but yeah, it's, I mean, the great joy of putting this issue together, I'm sure you'll agree, was um, it's features so many writers who we've not published in print before, or even first time Little White Lies writers, and it's just kind of great to bring them in to the fold, and hopefully they will be contributing for many years to come now. Yeah. I'm pleased with this issue. I think the, uh, the film itself is really amazing, and uh, it's very exciting for the prospect of it coming out and people being able to see it and talk about it. It is definitely a real kind of talking point movie where you go and see it and then you go out with friends and you discuss how you feel about what happens in it. It's got <laughs> a real twist ending that you don't ever really want to hear about or, or be spoiled, but it's you know really effective and it's a film that doesn't really pull its punches. So yeah. it, was, it was fascinating watching it at Sundance. With, I was with uh, three of my friends and... Th those three people really did not like the film and we had a quite a um, heated conversation afterwards, shall we say, about um, their issues with the film. And actually, speaking to Carrie Mulligan afterwards, I kind of brought up some of these issues and she was very, you know, very accommodating and very open to kind of these criticisms people might have. So I think that's kind of refreshing in itself. We live in a world where filmmakers and actors can be quite, like, combative against criticism, but... This does feel like it's it's meant to spark conversation, and it's not it's not didactic. It's not you know no, this is one way of looking at the world. It's it's, very, it's an open film. Yeah, you can you, can, you know so. it's not it's not telling you one thing or the other. It's sort of opening the uh, portal for discussion. Oh. oh, one thing I must say as well about the issue is Laura Callahan has designed the cover, and I feel like this was quite a coup for us. We've had lots of lovely comments saying, oh, my God, Laura Callahan." Yeah, Laura Callahan, amazing um, illustrator from Northern Ireland. I yes, think. from Belfast. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, we've been fans of her stuff for ages. And I think we kind of slightly sheepishly reached out to her and uh, was <laughs> surprised and, and overjoyed when she came back and said she'd be up for doing yeah. it. So you should buy it. Was... I think, you know, she's someone that is only going to get bigger and bigger. So you should buy it you know, say you were there on the, she, on the ground she, she has exhibitions that where she has her work printed on rugs. That's how big she is. <laughs> oh, rugs. We don't have that. <laughs> so the magazine, out in all good retailers now, and you can get it through our website, lwlies.com slash shop. And you can also subscribe to the magazine if you want to see what other treats we have in store later in the year. Uh, okay, sales sales talk over. Let's get to <laughs> Let's get to selling other people's wares. 
uh, with this week's new movies. And first up, we have Juliano Donnell and Kleber Mendoza Filio's Can Competition playing movie Baccarat. In a near future Brazil, after the death of her grandmother, Teresa comes home to her matriarchal village to find a succession of sinister events that mobilizes all of its residents. Here is a clip. There's so much you can do with a knife. This world is upside Okay, that was a clip from the Brazilian film Baccarat by Juliano Donnell, who is a production designer by trade, but co-director on this on this film, and Kleber Mendoza Filho, who might be known to some of our listeners for his first two films, um, Neighboring Sounds and Aquarius. This film played in Cannes and um, it, it has um, since gone on to become a, a huge, huge hit in its native Brazil, which is quite weird considering it's, <laughs> uh, Brazil is currently, you know, run by very ultra-conservative government who are kind of not that open to having films critical of what they're doing, even if it's in, in, in a kind of, in, in the guise of fantasy. Um, is this a dangerous film? Is this gonna is this gonna change people's minds? Um, I I hope so. I I mean, there's a, a noble history of um, filmmaking as counterculture, I guess. And in your great interview with Kleber um, Mendoza Filho in uh, the current issue of Low I Lies, he picks up on a lot of this, and you know he says it far better than I ever could. Yeah, I mean, the film takes this kind of the most dangerous game premise which we've seen a million times before and really elevates it to kind of a comment on like corruption at, at every every single level and uh, even kind of the relationship between north and south brazil which is something that i was you know completely ignorant of not knowing much about brazilian politics but the kind of the, the mass divide and the way that there is racism even within the country between these two warring factions I guess and it's one of those I remember seeing it at Cannes at about 10 o'clock at night and thinking um this is fun but like I don't really you know it it probably won't stay with me but actually I I have found myself thinking about it quite a lot I think it is like a really great film (laughs) it's so funny and so kind of brutal at the same time which is always something I'm a fan of but so it does so much with what I think is a very you know very familiar premise that we've seen a million times before and it is I was I went to see um The Hunt last night um Craig Zobel's new film uh which was banned in the United States after um this is gonna sound terrible whichever whichever mass shooting was the last one it was banned after that um and that again is about a group of very rich people hunting very poor people which is kind of the premise of background but background does it just so, so much better after the film I was with my friend Campbell, a friend of the podcast, and we were talking about what it is about Baccarat that is so much better than The Hunt. And I think it's that Baccarat really engages with why these people would choose to act in a certain way and 
there's this like kind of recurring joke in the film about um, any time a tourist or a stranger comes to the town of Baccarat, the locals are very very welcoming and they say, "Do you want to, do you want to see the museum?" No one ever wants to see the museum, and this becomes like a there's a there's a just great payoff with this museum at the end, and I think. At the risk of repeating myself, I just I just think it's such a fun film. Even watching it uh, again yesterday in the office on my computer, I was like, "This is just this is just really really good." I think one of the things that makes Baccarat so good, from my take on it, is that it really is a film that is kind of seeped in culture and politics and history and a real deep knowledge and passion for the country and and its roots and, and its people. And that's all up there on the screen. And, and, and you really get a feeling of like, these aren't just kind of your usual genre movie meat puppets who are going to be like, one thing is going to happen to make you feel that you need to like root for them against the <laughs> evil capitalists who are who, with, their, with their hunting rifles. There's actually like a real sense of like, you're rooting for an, an entire village rather than just like these kind of individuals who might, one might be a bit tainted and the other one is, isn't. And, yeah, it, it kind of it kind of does that so well, and I think one of the things that uh, Kleber Mendoza Filho has, has talked about a lot throughout all his, I, I think I've interviewed him for for each of his films, and each time we've had a conversation about John Carpenter. <laughs> um, I mean, John Carpenter is someone who is who makes these kind of off kilter genre movies where you know the very simple premises of like there is a place that you can't can't get into and out of and one guy has to get into and out of it. Or, you know, there is a, a group of guys protecting a place from some outsiders who are trying to get in. And, and it's these very simple dynamics. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it feels like the ultimate John Carpenter homage because you got Assault a, a on Precinct 13 because it's like the little place being defended, the sort of working class people defending, defending themselves against these violent outsiders. You've also got like Escape from New York, which is like this kind of a complete geographic area which has been you know <laughs> taken and maligned and 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 is now been turned into this completely different place by nefarious uh unseen hands of, of government and you've also got like think something like they live which is like this really almost sci-fi element to the film of like how easy it would be to just to discover that you're being that something weird is happening in the background that you you weren't party to, um, I mean one of, one of the, the the most fascinating aspects of the film there's this kind of slow drip plot device where they're kind of gradually realizing that something weird is happening. And one of the first things is that somebody tries to look up their town on Google Maps and mm. there's no there's no evidence of it, of it anymore and the, the, <laughs> the, these kind this kind of network of corruption has has kind of reached the point where for this this game to play out, that all these things have to happen, these, the, the, you know, the conditions have to be right to, to to make it kind of legal. I'm doing lots of air quotes here, <laughs> on, 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 and I know you can't see me doing those, but I, I mean, I was I, I'm a big fan of it. I think yeah, like you're saying, I mean, the the use of technology within the film, I think, is fascinating, and for me now, I've got a kind of like very attuned cringe reaction to seeing tech in film and I think that a lot of filmmakers do it very badly and very few do it well and this is one of the films where it has just enough tech stuff going on like there's a great scene with a drone which when the first time I saw it I thought was very cheesy but now I actually think it's genius where this drone very slowly just kind of like flies in like a flying saucer you're like what what is going on here but you know for a small town in Brazil 
it's kind of like, well, yeah, that, that's exactly what it would look like. And, and I mean, the idea of a, a town being erased from Google Maps, like to, to us and to, I think, most of the kind of quote unquote Western world, that is like, that could never happen. But I think it probably does happen all the time. And I think th- this the level of corruption that is like playing in the film is so it doesn't ever feel far-fetched you're like it's totally within reason that this this could happen and if i was if i were the the filmmakers i would be kind of sleeping with one eye open because you can totally understand why the brazilian government were not were not keen on uh, funding any sort of publicity for this at all uh, even though it is a great i think it is a you know a great showcase for brazilian talent and brazilian filmmaking talent and acting talent as well we must shout out Udo Kier, who's always doing the most in everything, all the time. An all-time great performance from him as, you know, the archetypal, slimy European. One of my favourite bits in the film comes quite late on, when everything's gone to hell, and he's just screaming, Tony, 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 at the top <laughs> of his lungs. Um, you know. I, it's good, because he, he, he usually crops up in, like, a single scene. Yeah, we get movies. a lot of Udo here. You get a lot of Udo for your duck butt. If, uh, if you're an Udo fan, it's, you know, a bonanza. Last thing I would say on this is that, although the film is, like, super specific to Brazil, uh, just to follow on from what you were saying, there definitely is a feeling that it could happen to you. You know, oh, that yeah. this, is, this, is, this, this has a kind of broad vibe to it that is, like, that this is a story that could be told anywhere, you know, watch your backs, the government are after you, murder tourists are on your doorstep, <laughs> <laughs> the rich want to kill you. I mean, the town, the townspeople of Baccarat are so normal as well that, you know, it's not like, um, in a lot of these hun- people being hunted movies, it's, you know, they've been chosen because they're um, criminals or something. Um, but in this, they're just, you know, people just trying to get on with their lives and just trying to you know, live day to day. And I think that is the kind of most terrifying part is that they're just chosen because of their normal, you know? And um, one of the great details in the film is that none of the people who organised this whole sport event um, have really done their research and have any idea of the town's history. And this becomes very important later on um, because if they'd given the town more than kind of a cursory Google, they would have realized what they were letting themselves in for let's do some scores and for those of you unaware of our crazy scoring system (laughs) we have um anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect each one ranked out of five so you get a a tripartite score of the entire movie movie viewing process so if you would like to go ahead um so probably a three anticipation just because i'm in at Cannes you're always kind of you, you with the main competition certainly you just kind of most of the films there you don't know anything about and you're going in blind and I think the description of this was very vague I don't I don't remember reading anything about a most dangerous game uh, plot twist um, so yeah three and then a four and a four in retrospect it definitely holds up on a second watch I think it's a great night out at the cinema if you can uh, get down to see it yeah, I'd go fours across the board, me like high fours across the board. It's kind of, I don't think it's like your kind of perfect masterpiece, but then I don't think it wants to be. It's mm. like it ticks so many boxes, as you say. It's like a, it's a fun popcorn movie. It's a political movie. It's a metaphor movie. It's a psychedelic movie. It's got loads of lo- loads of weird stuff in it. So yeah, 
Great watch, Spandau, watch it. Spandau Ballet reference as well. Well, there you go. Icing <laughs> on the cake. <laughs> All any movie needs. So coming next, we've got Levan Atkins and Then We Dance. passionate coming-of-age tale set amid the conservative confines of modern Tbilisi, the film follows Merab, a competitive dancer who is thrown off balance by the arrival of Irakli, a fellow male dancer with a rebellious streak. And that was a clip from And Then We Danced. So Hannah, another Cannes Film Festival premiere here. Did you catch this one over on the... The Riviera? I did, yeah. I think this was an eight, uh, eight in the morning uh, director's fortnight job, um, which is, you so know... that's the other strand. That's the kind of glitzy premiere yeah, strand. Yeah, the, the Kinzan. And uh, obviously this year, well, last year, I should say, the big film uh, that premiered was The Lighthouse, which kind of won their award. Um, but yeah, this was playing as well. And we went to the premiere and... It was, I think it was a really sort of joyous occasion because obviously this film would go on to have a lot of difficulties in its, in its homeland, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get on to. Um, but at the time it was just, you know, the room was very full of love and I think um, a lot of emotion and it was really nice to see the filmmaker and his two lead actors up on the stage kind of having brought this uh, very charming, touching film to fruition. So this film uh, takes place in Georgia, uh, the one next to Russia, not the one in America. A place where LGBT rights exist, but homosexuality is frowned upon. The director and the actors have received threats and abuse from from people from Orthodox Church there. And it's just been very tough for them to promote the film and to um, have it play their, in their own country. So... I guess it's symbolic that it had that platform in Cannes initially, mm. um, but it doesn't. You know, it doesn't feel like it's at all compromised, or that they're using like metaphor or symbolism to to get across the what the the feelings of the characters and the lifestyles of the characters. So that seems like a, a very kind of forthright, positive message that it is delivering. So, um, can you can you give us a little bit of background as to the story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gave a little kind of summary. I think it is quite a straightforward plot. Um, there's this young dancer who's very, very skilled, very passionate. His whole life is dance. And he... But not just any dance. Not just any dance. Um, Georgian dance, which I, again, I, I feel like I'm really showing my ignorance today. Um, I knew nothing about the world of Georgian dance before going to Cannes oh, last year. Few do, few do. <laughs> I think I think that's an educational aspect of the film. Yeah, definitely. One thing to mention about Georgian dance, which they repeat a lot, is that it's very sexless and yes. and and free of emotion. Strong. It's and strong. You must and masculine. be masculine. And there's there. I think the the coach says there is no sex in Georgian dance. Exactly. Um, which you know I think is very different from uh, Western dance, uh, particularly things like ballet and where the there's always I think 
certainly for a long time, probably not so much nowadays, but there was always a stigma around male dancers because it was perceived as something feminine and something that if you enjoyed dance, then you were somehow, you know, you were gay or something, which is obviously, you know, really bigoted and horrible. But in Georgian society, um, it dance is a huge part of their culture and it is a very masculine thing. It's very, you know, to be to be celebrated and which is, you know, great. But then that's the kind of the whole... Um, uh, irony in the film is that you know in Georgian culture it's seen as this huge masculine you know source of pride but then LGBT people are kind of treated with such um, disdain within the culture they talk about a, a dancer a gay dancer who was part of um, the the class who was sort of ostracized and never never heard from again and I think the film is a real sort of... It, I mean, it's a coming-of-age, you know, self-discovery tale. This young dancer who is very focused on um, his future and the, the fact that if he passes this um, audition, then he will be able to get out of Georgia via Georgian dance. He'll be able to, you know, kind of see the world. Um, but then his plans are kind of disrupted by the arrival of another dancer from another area who is uh, just as good as him, but more popular, more kind of, you know, just more everything, I guess. And he doesn't really know how he feels about this. I think there's, you know, a bit of jealousy and resentment because he's used to being the star. But then as as these things, as, you know, these things go, he uh, gradually kind of falls in love with his rival. Um, it's very... Um, their rivalry is it's it's quite a soft rivalry. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those you know in American rom coms when you have like the couple and they when they first meet they're bickering and arguing and, and yeah. having a go at each other and you're just looking you're like, at your watch thinking what well, should we give this half an hour before they're uh, you know <laughs> yeah doing, it's not doing like things. Black Swan it's <laughs> you know it, it's more like Dirty Dancing it's it, it has got Dirty Dancing vibes to it. It has, yeah. Um, not not a bad thing. No, no, know? I don't. I, that is not a pejorative. The one thing anyone. I wanted from Dirty Dancing was more gay characters. So exactly. I feel very uh, very good about this representation. Um, I yeah. Havana Nights. Were there any Were there any gay characters in that? I didn't watch Havana Nights. Oh, we should watch that and find out. We should do that as a film club. Yes. Diego Luna, justice <laughs> for him. And Brittany is Brittany in that one. I. <laughs> As I said, I didn't watch this. Oh, film. okay. We, <laughs> we, no should, idea. We, we, we get get on the re, get on the research. Trail. If anyone should, knows, <laughs> yeah, we should. Uh, Michael's going to come back and be like, "Why have we got what, so what's many emails this about Nights correspondence?" <laughs> what? What? Um, speaking of Michael, we should uh, talk about the little Studio Ghibli reference in the film. So on his wall, um, the uh, the the central dancer Merab has a little mm. poster of uh, Miyazaki's mm. Spirited Away. And he has a tattoo. He has and, a and he has a tattoo, tattoo as well. And uh, there's a scene at the end where he he does the kind of you know things are hitting rock bottom, and he's and he's you know he's he's reached this moment of uh, maturity where he starts tearing all of his childhood posters off the wall, but he leaves that one. <laughs> That's the one he leaves. Spirited away, half tears it off, and then he's like, "No, I'm going to put this one back on. This is still cool." Um, <laughs> But I get. I, I was trying to sort of wonder whether there was kind of any parallels there of uh, of, of storyline. Whether this is a. I guess. It, I guess there there is a sort of vague coming of age vibe to both films. Yeah, and I think the kind of slightly uptight protagonist meeting this very uh, beguiling free spirit 
literally in the case of Spirited Away, um, is, you know, across both films. But I I believe um, the story goes that this was kind of written in because Levin, the actor, not Levin, the director, had had a Ghibli tattoo and is a, is a massive Ghibli fan. So they kind of wrote in this little character detail, which is Aww. really nice. I think it's um, it's uh, always nice when it feels like there's a real connection between filmmakers and their cast. And, and their tattoos. And their tattoos. <laughs> As someone with lots of tattoos, it's always nice to feel seen. Um, but we should say as well, um, Levin, again, Levin, the actor, not the director, is um, not a professional actor. He is a professional dancer, and that's kind of how he came to the role, because he was spotted on Instagram by Levin, the filmmaker, who had to... I, I, I get the feeling he had to convince him to be in the film. He was kind of like, come on, please, be in my film. And uh, glad he got there, because I think it is... Uh, he, he's very good, and it, it obviously... When there's a film where a kind of uh, 75% of it is dancing, you really want a professional dancer and not um, an actor trying to look like a professional dancer. I, I must say, sorry to get all critical here, <laughs> I, I'm not, not mean to diminish Levin, the actor's dancing skills, but I kind of felt that a little bit shortchanged on the dance in this film, especially for a film called And Then They Danced. What? I, I, I kind of felt that... I mean, the one thing that I got was that the Georgian dance was very was quite repetitive, and they still they do that kind of very like it's it's the sort of arm wavy thing <laughs> with the sort of the the, the, the feet kicky thing, yeah. And you see a lot of that, yeah. And then I kind of and it wasn't filmed in in a way that you that you really got to to see the whole body. It was often from that this waist up. And yeah, I sometimes felt like the dance sections felt a little bit rote, like a bit, I guess you got that idea of that dance practice is very repetitive and you're mm. going through the same motions over and over again and you're perfecting this very, in, in what is a relatively a very small sequence, you know, you, you have to dedicate your life and many, many months to perfecting it. And I guess you get that across, but I guess in terms of watching the film, I, I sort of was yearning for them to break out another routine or let's try something completely different or let's do a bit of a freestyle, you know. Um, but they can't, that's the whole I point. I know, I know, I know. Because they keep saying you've got to follow the steps, you've got to do it exactly how, I mean, there's, I think that's... I think, like, I think the... from that description, maybe our listeners can guess where the film ends, ends up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the good, one of the, I think the film's kind of standout scenes is this... Um, moment at a party where um robin's honey plays great song great needle drop there um and levin the actor does a kind of sexy sexy dance (laughs) um a a, a non-georgian dance shall we say for the um for iraqi the object of his affections and it's this moment of real kind of i think that that's when it really feels like a coming of age film the courting rituals of, of the teens shall we say and this kind of real like freedom that I think he doesn't get in the rest of Georgian dance. You know, he's so, he's been trained his whole life to do things one way. And I think the presence of this outside force really encourages him to reevaluate because I mean, the rest of his life is so sad in a way, you know, he lives with his grandmother and his father is away working. Mm-hmm. Um, and his brother is a bit of a ne'er-do-well uh, who never goes to dance practice and is out till all hours of the night. And poor uh, Marab is working in a restaurant to kind of bring some money home. He's got an awful, really nosy neighbour. 
And um, he's kind of drifting away from his best friend who I think is very, very patient with him, far more patient than I would be. It's a very kind of um, Elio and what was his girlfriend's name in Call Me By Your Name? Esther Garel. Esther Garel. <laughs> can't remember her name. Um, Marta. No, that was the maid. Uh, anyway, uh, where, you know, this kind of um, young man and his female friend kind of really support each other through the perilous young adult years, uh, which I think is really, really nice to see as well. It's There is a kind of will they, won't they with them, but I think it's just nice to kind of see boys and girls being allowed to be friends and it not be a constant, like, they have to end up together, they have to be going somewhere, which is one of the great faults of uh, uh, Call Me By Your Name, I think, is that Luca Gardnino was like, oh yeah, he probably would get back together with uh, his ex-girlfriend. I was like, no, why? <laughs> anyway, sorry, that is a that total aside. That didn't happen in the film. That didn't happen in the film. That's just me getting annoyed at, at Luca. Um, but, uh, and then We Dance, I think, is operating in the same mode. Maybe not as successfully, I think. My, my issue was, I think that, yeah, I think you do think of Call Me By Your Name just because it's been so recent. Mm. Um, I th- I thought that I thought calling by your name there was the two protagonists who get together there is that element of unlikeliness from their class and their physicality and all all these various factors so like when they do get together it even even though it's you know you kind of know it's going to happen it still feels surprising whereas in this film you could kind of see where it was going from quite early on not that that necessarily diminishes the pleasure of just seeing those that that expectation played out on screen but I, I did kind of feel from like the first time Iraqli comes into the room yeah, with his, with his little earring. with his little hoop earring. It's like, <laughs> okay, I see where this is going, and yeah. and and it, and it kind of slightly dutifully plays out that scenario, and um, you know, in an interesting way. I think I think that the the stuff that was more interesting for me was the, I guess the the idea of the way that that the director uses tradition as this kind of millstone around everyone's neck there's this really kind of weird sequence where the, the sort of as you say the ne'er-do-well brother has like got a woman pregnant and all they're worried about is oh we're gonna have to pay for a wedding now like yeah. and we're gonna have to have this traditional georgian wedding which is going to be a lot of effort and nobody actually wants to do it including the people who are involved but we just you know that's the way things are done and that's what we're going to do so i guess this this sort of message of how tradition can, you know, it's not necessarily good for everyone. You know, it's people, people's lives and feelings and the way people live has changed enough for, for us to sort of, you know, not be so scrupulous about these things. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think, I think as well, it, it is also kind of very careful to not totally bash on uh, Georgian tradition. I think it does it in quite a nuanced way. Um, there's obviously, you know, with, with the dance, there's a lot of respect that it has for the for the art form and it's clear that the characters love what they do, but there is that kind of very familiar, like Footloose and uh, countless other, like what's the other one um, with Julia Stiles? Save the Last Dance. Save the Last Dance. Um, idea of like, um, the stuffy up, uptight men like you can't dance yeah. like that, which is uh, you know we, we ha- there is a there is a degree of familiarity here which I found quite disappointing. I guess it's, it is just all very predictable. But at the same time, who am I to say that Georgia shouldn't get the predictable no. LGBT rom com that 
we've all had for years. Let's put some scores on this. Uh, go ahead. Um, so probably a four in anticipation, just because I'd heard about it uh, before I saw it can, and I was it very much sounds like my kind of thing, so I was very interested. Uh, probably a four in enjoyment and then a three in retrospect. I think it, it is a sweet film and I'm interested to see where kind of all the stars go next. But yeah, it's I can't say it's that memorable or really something that I'd be in a hurry to revisit. Yeah, I'd, I'd go the same for me as well. I mean, it was like, you know, solidly made and, you know, I think there's enough there to think about. And, I, I, you know, as I say, I like I, I like the idea that it's not dumping on tradition it's basically sort of suggesting that there is a way to be traditional and 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 uh and honor that side of culture without just completely trashing it mm. um tradition can be inclusive yes yeah. that's the message well thanks very much for that and now we're going to speed on to david lynch's the elephant man from 1980 which is this week's film club catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So in this week's Film Club, we've got David Lynch's The Elephant Man. It sees a Victorian surgeon rescuing a heavily disfigured man who is mistreated while scraping a living as a sideshow freak. Behind his monstrous facade, there is revealed a person of kindness, intelligence and sophistication. So that was a clip from David Lynch's The Elephant Man. Hannah, sometimes with these film club films, these are meant to be the kind of canonical classics that everyone's seen before that we're kind of casually revisiting. Yeah. Is this is this one that you'd seen before or is this a first time for you? No, um, you know, actually, it is one of my mum's favourite films and my mum famously has very bad taste. She won't listen to this podcast, so I can say that. Um, and 
I usually when she recommends a film to me, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll definitely watch that. Um, so for years, I didn't bother watching The Elephant Man because I assumed it would be quite bad. But it's one that I, you know, I, I think everyone talks about The Elephant Man. Everyone talks about it as um, John Hurt's greatest performance. And everyone talks about it as, you know, one of David Lynch's great films. So I was very excited to be given a kind of excuse to... Uh, to finally sit down and watch it, which is what I treat film club as. It's, you know, a little bit of nice homework for me. And it didn't disappoint, even on my horrible laptop screen with tinny speakers. I think it's a really remarkable film, which definitely like holds up. It's say I, I had to look up when it was made because it doesn't feel like an 80s movie. It has this kind of timelessness to it, which, you know, means you, you could totally believe it was shot in the kind of late 1800s. I, yeah, I was very, very thankful to Adam for making this our film cut pick. It's being re-released on a new 4K restoration, so you're going to get even richer <laughs> contrast between that, you know, high contrast black and white photography by the veteran cinematographer Freddie Francis. Um, I always felt that this was like, in his early career, you, David, you know, obviously David Lynch kicked his career off with Eraserhead, which is a kind of, <laughs> you know, very weird industrial experimental statement of intent. And it became this kind of canonical midnight movie. And then after that, he sort of shifted away and was in much the same way as maybe like Marvel movies now handpick these little, these, these kind of indie directors to come on board and make these big studio goliaths. Lynch went and made Dune, which was obviously this kind of hulking sci-fi movie with special effects and a huge budget, which um, crashed and burned. And he also made The Elephant Man, which was um, produced by Mel Brooks, no less, uncredited. <laughs> uh, he had his name removed from the credit, so people wouldn't think it was one of his, like, funnies. Funnies. Because uh, it's not Which, which not it very, funny. very much isn't. And my, I'd seen this years ago, and remember thinking at the time, yeah, just, you know, it maybe doesn't feel like a David Lynch film. No, absolutely because it's, not. Because it's got a very, quite a sort of traditional story and there's characters and the mo I think the morals of it are quite, in, in it are quite simple of respect and, and, you know, this idea of using people as kind of freaks to point to and, and uh, an exploitation of their, of their looks and their character. Um, seeing it again... I actually really enjoyed quite a lot of the the little Lynchian moments, if you want to call them that. <laughs> like the film starts off with this absolutely insane oh uh, prologue in which uh, a sort of strobing elephant is is roaring while a woman's kind of cast to the floor screaming, and it, it is like it's pure horror and it's pure experimentation as well, like visually, sonically. And this is sort of setting up the character of, of, of John Merrick's mother, who was, per the law, she was attacked by this African <laughs> elephant and uh, so was born the elephant man, John Merrick. And, and throughout, you, will, you know, much of the film is set in the London hospital with um, Auntie Hopkins' kindly surgeon, Freddie Treves. Um, there is a real kind of love of, of like analogue industrial engineering you, you constantly got shots of the little gas burners on the roof which are kind of illuminating the place and he loves shots of pipes and and engines and steam and 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 people and and there's this a there's this incredible shot of a workhouse with these guys without tops on just sort of moving this <laughs> thing across the table and it's 
you get these very Lynchian interludes throughout what is quite a, a melodramatic story otherwise. Yeah, I think um, the, the thing I said to you and Adam when I came back into the office was that it definitely feels like the least Lynchian Lynch film. But I guess, you know, Lynch loves making movies about weirdos and freaks. And this is a film about a man who looked like a freak, but actually was a very sort of nice, normal shy and sensitive man who just wanted that most basic of things to be treated with a little dignity and this the story of the elephant man um of uh, joseph merrick as his, i mean one, john merrick no joseph merrick oh sorry his, <laughs> so so one of the great details about about uh, joseph merrick is that his name was joseph merrick but everyone called him John because in his book about the elephant man freddie tree referred to him as john merrick so his name has become john merrick but he always signed his letters as Joseph Merrick. So wow. it's kind of, you know, the, the way that this man's history has been shaped by everyone else around him. But for, from the moment he was kind of born, his story didn't belong to him, it belonged to someone else. It belonged to the people that exhibited him, him as a freak. It belonged to Freddie Treves, who was, you know, a great friend to him and really fought for him and fought for him to be treated like a human being. Um, even he managed to kind of mess up and be like, "Yeah, John, you know." But but this is this is this is the story of the film as well because you know there is the idea that he has this horrible life as as a circus freak where he's been dragged around by this transient who mm. is um, who is trying to get whatever cash he can off of him and, and keeping him in this in these really you know, in revolting de- decision in you know caged with monkeys. Yeah, and um, but then you have. Freddie, who is kind of taking him at, taking him away, but then he becomes the same thing within society as this kind of curiosity that you know that that the high society want to want to meet and mingle with, and it and, becomes fashionable and, to and be it, exactly. a friend of the elephant man. So, and and I think that the beginning of the film, you don't see John Merrick for quite a long time. He has this kind of cloth bag over his head, and you know there is that kind of idea of well, is is the film trying to sort of keep him aside to like build up this sense of oh my god there is this freak and then suddenly you just see him in 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 a very you know just someone walks into a room and he's sat in a bed and you and you see his face in in kind of bright lights and that's it for the rest of the for the Mm. next hour of the film it's it's completely normalized and um and you hear him speak and you hear him speak you know he, he speaks very eloquently and um, Freddie Trees and she like very surprised by this. It's because he's been told he's he's a, a, an idiot by the uh, proprietor of the freak show. He's like you know he's a an invalid without me he'd be nothing kind of narrative. Whereas actually this poor man has been so cowed down and so beaten down by um, life and by people who want to take advantage of him. When he's shown this kind of basic human kindness, he doesn't really know how to react and. Um, he goes to live in the hospital um, where he's kind of kind of studied a little bit, um, but mainly just, you know, allowed to build his little card uh, cathedral and, you know, meet these lovely actresses who come and visit him. But it's like you say, you know, he becomes this, it's just a different cage, really. And John Merrick, Joseph Merrick died when he was 27. And this film kind of covers really the, the last few years of his life and it's so profoundly sad you know everything he endures with this kind of still like quite 
hopeful spirit there's this moment where he says to uh freddie i've been meaning to ask you do you think you can cure me and it's just heartbreaking <laughs> all the way through you're just you know this this poor man and the all these things he had to endure i think you know all of us know like d- you know don't be a dick is a very simple rule in life but i think the kind of subconscious biases that everyone has in life about you know that you don't even think about it like the way you recoil sometimes from somebody because because they look different and this film really it's one of the finest kind of depictions i think of that difficulty um the difficulty of living with a with a facial deformity that i i can remember seeing it really is such a sad and poetic film that really affords him the dignity i think that he never kind of got whilst he was alive sadly well there you have it i believe the elephant man is going to be re-released on on screens and on blu-ray and i even think the blu-ray comes with a little cardboard um, make your own cathedral so you can pretend to be the elephant man yourself <laughs> which is uh, very nice um, so next week we will be discussing A Quiet Place 2 the much Quiet Place 2 just much, sounds silly <laughs> there's another quiet place A Quieter Place A Quieter Place <laughs> we'll also be talking about The Truth which is the first non-Japanese film by Palm Door winner Hirokazu Koreeda and then we will be looking at the film Wait Until Dark in Film Club. Thanks very much for listening. You can contact us lwlies.com and truthandmovies at tclondon.com and through our Twitter, LWLies. Thanks very much for Hannah Woodhead for her wise words. I've been David Jenkins, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital production. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.